actually did. Uh, we had five texts that we would look at all last year, and this is one of the texts, so we're going to do that. And here's the question before us. It's our last, it's our last in a mini-series on life change. So the question is this, how do we change? Uh, how do people genuinely, truly change? Uh, the answers that are given and sought today, both inside and outside the church, are legion. Uh, unlike the shrinking populations of Moldova or Poland or Puerto Rico or Portugal, the answers for how you change inside and outside the church multiply daily and are growing by the minute. And the reason why is because uh, there is no end to the law. There is no end to human effort. The obsession with life change touches on this need for us to change our life, and it moves into this area of human effort. And because it mixes with that, there is always one more thing to do, and there's always something new coming down the pike. There's always another book being written. There's always a new strategy. There's always a new way to change. One popular way to change today is decide to change. It comes in many forms. Uh, inside the church, like the surrender or the act of the will or the yielding or becoming uh, devoted and committed or making a resolution or discipline and denial or opening the door of your heart and making Jesus Lord. There's this sense in which you can decide to change. Uh, you also could decide to obey God and His law. That's also a way you can decide to change. You can decide to love God, love Him above everything, <laughs> have no idols in your life. Love people, serve people, sacrificially give yourself to someone, exhaust yourself, deplete yourself to fill somebody else up. There's a notion you can decide to do that. You get the picture. However, many in the Decide to Change camp are reporting a continued frustration of desiring and doing the wrong thing despite knowing better. Despite wanting to be better and despite wanting to do better, there's a continued frustration among, growing among those in the Decide to Change camp that they know what to do and at times want it to be true, but they keep doing what they don't want to do. Some even report that they're getting worse deciding to change. Another popular way of changing today is some form of activating God, some way that you can activate God. The model, in this model, God is like the force and you're like Luke Skywalker. If you have the force on your side, everything will be okay. If you don't, you're toast. But it's okay because you can activate the force in your life. This view, this is a view of life change. You can activate God in your life, just like Luke Skywalker can activate the force. Uh, there's ways to activate, like tapping into the mysterious movements of the Spirit, and the ways to do that are plethora. They're multiformed. It, it goes from traditions to special anointed individuals. There's different theologies. I mean, the spectrum is huge. There's ways of applying biblical principles to your life. This cycles all the time. Certain churches, certain movements have, this is the way you do this. This is the way you do that. This is how you have a good marriage. This is how you parent. It cycles all the time. There's ways of, if you do these steps these 10 steps, you will be delivered of your addiction. You will be delivered of this besetting sin. You will be delivered to finally love people. 
There's also ways of which you, if you know spiritual secret, you activate God in your life. If you know the right doctrine, you activate God in your life. Even there are notions today that if you worship God the right way, like you have the right music, and then you have certain people that can read Scripture and certain people that can't, you activate God the right way. Another way is that you activate God by obeying the law. And that means the traditional ten, and it means the progressive spiritual laws, like having a quiet time or going on a mission trip. And then it means things like these endless laws that are out there in all of our life. If you obey the law of thinness, you'll be fine. If you obey the law of capability, you'll be okay and you can be happy about yourself. I mean, it goes on and on and on. However, more and more Christians today are reporting in this activating God camp, reporting at epidemic levels, spiritual burnout, more and more and more. I meet them all the time. I come from this camp. I come from the Activating God camp. And more and more in the Activating God camp at epidemic levels are saying they are overwhelmed with spiritual anxiety, wave after wave of spiritual anxiety, overwhelmed with this desperate sense of spiritual exhaustion that goes not because you're doing work because the harvest is plentiful and the labors are few, but a spiritual exhaustion that goes down to the roots of your being and zaps you, exhausts you. More and more people in the activating God camp are describing a deepening, deadening, spiritual depression. So, this is our last look at the mystery of life change. So if we don't get it now, we're all in trouble. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. Our reading this morning begins Exodus 20, 3 through 5. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And now, 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early on the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward 
on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back up in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of, of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of, God, of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own people, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we ask that this is uh, a fascinating, it is an unbelievable passage, and the reality of it is so wonderful and so deep and so real and so applicable today. We ask that you would grant it to us. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give clarity to our minds, realness to our hearts? Would you shine on the page, Lord? Would we even now... Would you grant a breakthrough? Would we experience you, your personal active presence with the Bible even now? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, y'all, the plan is simple. We're going to look at a vivid image, a very vivid image for life change. So I want to give us a theological vision of life change. So in other words, if you have missed all the others, this is the most important one to hit. If you've missed all the other five sermons, what we're going to look at, this image, I want to be seared into your imagination that when you think of life change, this is what you think of. This is the image of life change, that it gets pushed down deep into your bones, that it's like a picture that's hung on the walls of your imagination that you're just like, it captures you, it takes your breath away, and it guides you into what real life change is all about. 
Second thing we're going to do is some of you more practical types are craving something to do, and this has all been inspired by Holly, because she's a practical type, and she came in to talk to me about practical things. Uh, God puts concentrations of His glory in different ways, in different personalities and gift clusters and people. Some of us are thinkers, some of us are deep feelers, some of us are doers. All of them reflect the image of God and concentrations of God's glory in us. So we need each other. We make a whole team when they're all working together. And it's fascinating how God clusters personalities and gifts around those of you that think, those are word gifts, communication gifts. Those of you feel deeply are circling around relational gifts. Those of you are like, man, tell me what to do. You're, you're mission-oriented people. We need to work as a team, as a church. How do you know which gift you have? It's because you look through the lens of your gift when you come to the church. You come to the church, and, and it's a wonderful time, and we're getting to know each other. And then after a while, you start looking through the lens of your gifting, and you go, we're missing that. I don't see that. You're looking through the lens of your gifting. And we need each other to exercise our gifts. So here's the deal. We all need to grow in these three areas, so we're going to get really, really practical. So the second thing we're going to do is we're going to get practical. Some of you need to roll up your sleeves. You need something to do. I'll be more than happy to give you something to do. Okay? What's the vivid image for life change? To be seared into your imagination. Those of you that are familiar with Samson, is anyone familiar with Samson? Here's what you need to know. 1 Samuel 5 is happening at the same time of the life of Samson. That's where we're at. All right? So the Philistines are like Vikings. The Philistines are people that came from the sea. They saw what they liked. They took it, and they won't leave. And Samson has been a real pain in their butt, a troublemaker. They're tired of him. And the feelings, they hate Samson, and the feelings mutual except for one curvy Philistine named Delilah that Samson kind of likes. So because of Samson, probably... What's happening here, and it happens in chapter 4, the Philistines decide to go for it. They decide to go for the throat. They decide to take it to Israel. They decide to go to Shiloh. They decide to go to Israel's spiritual, emotional, psychological, national, and cultural power center, Shiloh. Because that's where all the Moses tent of meeting stuff is. The tabernacle, the ark. Shiloh's where God localizes his presence. They're going for it. They're going to attack Shiloh. They're going to completely humiliate Israel. They want to be done with them. They want to be done with these little Samsons that keep popping up like little judges all the time. And don't miss this, though. The Philistines know all about Yahweh. They know all about his work. They know all about his wonders. They know all about the plagues at Egypt. They know all about how he conquered the gods of Egypt. In fact, in chapter 4, they know all about how God, this, this God in this ark, saved Israel, led them out of Egypt, and did so in a, in a powerful way in which the people who were slaves didn't lift a sword, didn't fire an arrow, and the most dominating 
powerful nation in the world was brought to its knees. Can you imagine? The Philistines were nothing compared to the Egyptians. The Egyptians were the world superpower. And not, what, not one tank, not one bullet, not one cavalry charge brought them down. And the whole world heard this. Everywhere Israel went, there were whispers. In our day, we would say things like, they heard the gospel. If you've wondered, did the whole world ever hear the gospel in those days? The whole world heard the gospel in those days. Every single nationality. Just in case you were wondering. So when Israel brings the ark to the battle, this is what the Philistines say. The Philistines were afraid. They said, a God has come into their camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? (laughs) These are the gods who struck the Egyptians. These are the gods that saved Israel. This is why what happens next is so shocking, it's so strange, you could call it a stranger thing. It starts on July 4th. Not that I'm counting down or anything. Verse 1, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. The Philistines win. They win. And don't miss this. They capture God. And now, this text and this world gets really interesting. The reason why the Philistines, you see in your text in 5.1, do you see how they travel to Ashdod? The reason why they take the ark to Ashdod is because Ashdod is their spiritual, emotional, psychological, national, cultural power center. And they're taking their war trophy the conquered God, to the God that won. Dagon is the chief God in the Philistine pantheon. Dagon is the God that Goliath was animated by, which will happen a little later in this story. I want you to notice, though, when Dagon's described, it's not described as a statue, which it was. It was a statue so big that they had to, it was bigger than the, the, its palace, which means when it does fall, it falls lengthwise. So it's as long as the palace Dagon was. You couldn't set him sideways length because he would bump into the walls. The only way he could hit the threshold is that the, the length of it was the size of the statue. But notice the text never calls the statue the statue of Dagon. The text says Dagon. The Philistines took the ark of God, brought it into the house of Dagon, and set up beside Dagon. Dagon is a real power to the Philistines. Dagon is a real presence to the Philistines. Dagon is a real God to the Philistines. So, but what does, what does Dagon do for the Philistines, though? Why would they make him their God? Why, why would he have such personal, active 
realities in their life. Why would Dagon matter to a Philistine? David Zoll in his new book, Seculosity, describes what a Dagon does this way. Most talk of worship tends to frame it, when you talk about worship, most of us when we talk about worship, we tend to frame it as a conscious pursuit, suggesting that life is simply a matter of finding the right thing to worship and then doing so. In other words, the Philistines simply chose Dagon. They could have chose Yahweh because they heard about Yahweh. Just as all the nations that were in that area and all the ones from Egypt to the Middle East in the Mediterranean world, everyone heard about Yahweh. He conquered the superpower. But they didn't. They chose Dagon. Saul continues by trying to correct, though, this choosing notion or this decide-to-change notion of worship. We fail to recognize that what we're actually that what we're what we're actually worshiping when we are the Philistines, I added the Philistines, obsess over food or money or sex or politics is not the thing itself, but how that thing makes us feel, if only for a moment, end quote. In other words, if human approval or being thin enough or successful enough or desired enough, or influential enough, or woke enough, or wealthy enough, or better than someone, makes me feel enough. Makes me feel value, makes me feel validated, makes me feel loved. Then I worship it. It's my Dagon. If eating healthy or not eating healthy, if being good or being bad, if Christianity or Buddhism or being a conservative or being a liberal, or if working or not working makes me feel in control, godlike. in control of of my value, in control of love, in control of control itself, then I worship it. It's my Dagon. The reason the first commandment, that's why I had it read, the reason the first commandment is not to have a Dagon in your life is because if you break the first commandment, you automatically will break the rest of the nine. In other words, the essence or the heart or the DNA or the nature or the blood of sin is idolatry. Sin is not simply lying. Sin is not simply having sex outside of marriage. Sin is not simply being lazy and watching porn. Sin is not simply taking advantage of the poor. Sin is not simply gossiping and slandering and belittling someone. Sin is not simply being angry and unkind. Sin is a Dagon. And because it's a Dagon, you bear its image. 
You think like it, you feel like it, you trust like it, you look like it, you act like it, you do it, you live it, you relate like it. The only safe place is imaging a good God. How do we really change? How do we really change? Our Dagons must fall on their face. The only way you'll change, the only way I'll change, the only way my marriage will change, the only way my parenting will change, the only way my handling my career will change, the only way my communication will change, the only way my thinking will change, the only way my feeling will change, the only way my desires will change, the only way my behavior will change, the only way is when Dagon's fall on their face. Verse 3, and when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, behold means pay attention in the Hebrew. Pay attention. Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. How do lives change? How do hearts change? How do relationships change? How does character and behavior change? How do idols fall? Answer, when God shows up. So, Jeff, what are you saying? I can't decide to change? No, you can't. Sorry. I mean, you can change, like, you know, a New Year's resolution. You could, like, lose some weight. You can, like, you know, try to curb some bad habits and put things on your computer, and you can get up early, and you can try to work hard. You can do a lot of that kind of stuff, but we're talking about, are we talking about real change? Oh, yeah, we're talking about, you're talking about real change. Yes, I'm talking about real change, Jeff. Okay, okay, real change. No. You can't. You can't decide to change. You can't activate life. There's no power within you to do that. You're not God. Verse 4, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, pay attention, Hebrew says, pay attention. Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon, now this image, this head goes all the way back to the garden. In other words, it goes all the way back when God himself was talking to the first people on the planet that needed life change. The first people on the planet that they needed their lives changed. He's talking to them and he says to them, I will send a hero and he will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, I am your savior. I am all the savior you need. And both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Hands in that time of the world, in the ancient world, symbolized power and control. And that's why when you, when you took a king, you cut off his hands. And so Dagon's power and control was cut off. And Yahweh says to the Philistines, as Yahweh says to Israel, who's no better than the Philistines, I am all the control and all the power you long for. 
I am all the life change you could ever need. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. It's about right. His rear end. You don't think the scriptures, you don't think the scriptures talks like that? So don't be shocked when I say it. I could say the word. The text does. How do our lives change? How do hearts change? How do relationships change? How does your character and behavior genuinely change? How do idols fall? Here's your image when God shows up. The personal, active presence of God changes everything. It is a game changer. It is a relationship changer. It is a relationship with God changer. It is an eternity changer. It is a character changer. It is a conduct changer. It, is a, it changes everything. Old Testament law, very specifically Deuteronomy 28.64 to be exact, says the climactic curse of idolatry. In other words, if Israel keeps breaking the first commandment and keeps having idols over and over again, the climactic curse, the curse that's coming, the curse that's ready, it's around the corner, is exile. It's the Philistines taking you away. And so what should have happened in chapter 4 is the Philistines should have taken Israel into exile. They should have taken them away. <laughs> but God has taken instead. God goes into exile in the place of Israel. I bet you didn't see that one coming. In the ark, it's mentioned 37 times in chapter 4 and 5 and 6. 37 times because it's the presence of God. God goes into exile. God goes into enemy territory. God crushes the enemy. God does what Israel couldn't do, what Israel failed to do. Remember, they lost the battle. God does it. God does it alone. And he continues to do it alone. He doesn't need you to change your life. The image in chapter 6, which we didn't read, we read a lot, we didn't go into chapter 6. is absolutely stunning. The Philistines are sending God back to Israel. And the picture is God, the ark, on a cart going through enemy territory all alone to Israel. God did it. And can you imagine, was Israel doing anything? Were they sharpening their spears? No, they're hiding in their caves. They're scared to death. And the victor, the conqueror, the king, the doer, salvation is of the Lord. The other image that we get in five is absolutely breathtaking. 
and 5, do you see this text? I mean, it says, this is unbelievable. Why were the people of Ashdod rising early the next day? Doesn't that seem weird? You know, they bring, they bring the ark into the Dagon's temple. They set it beside Dagon. It's almost like everybody was expecting some kind of God war to happen. Because the whole town runs to the tomb early in the morning, expecting to find a dead God. But he's risen. But he's risen. And when he rose, every idol snapped and fell on their face and had their heads cut off, their, their hands cut off, and the, the serpent was crushed. This is why you ever wonder why David takes off the head of Goliath? Again, the head of the serpent. Your life and my life changes when Jesus and his salvation shows up, period. No buts, no pluses, no additions. When we experience Jesus and his salvation by faith, which means you connect to Jesus and what he's done. That's what faith is. It's It's connecting, it's trusting, it's the only instrument that doesn't bring anything with it. It's an empty-handed reality that only grasps someone else and what they do. And that changes everything because Jesus changes everything. That's why Calvin, he says, listen, when when you get to your Bible and you find anything that says, if you find the word faith in your Bible, just pencil in Jesus and his salvation because the two are the same. You not only become a Christian by faith alone, you change as a Christian by faith alone, which means Jesus and his salvation alone. There is no other way. Some of you are wondering, okay, then what the heck do we do? Well, you don't activate your life. You don't activate God. That's, That's clear. So what are we doing? Well, that's why we ended last week with that image of that ancient Native American parable, the grandfather and the grandson walking together, and the grandfather says, trying to teach his son about being being good, and says that in everyone there's a good wolf and a bad wolf, and they're always at war with each other, and the grandson says to, you know, he starts thinking deeply about it, and he says, well, then which wolf wins, you know? And it's like, and this is where it falls. It has a little illusion. It has a little imagery that connects and some that doesn't. But this is very, very important. The grandfather says to the child, the one you feed. So here's the deal. You and I are not activating God when we do practical things. We're not activating God when we obey. We're not activating God when we tap into the Holy Spirit. We're not activating God. We're not in control of that. We don't obey to activate God. We obey because we've been activated by God past tense, and we are being activated by God, present tense. In other words, no part of your salvation is salvation by works. Every part of our salvation is salvation by grace alone. Justification by grace alone, sanctification by grace alone. 
We obey because we're loved, because we're enough, because we're justified. We're not, we're not obeying to get justified. We're not obeying to become enough. We obey because we already are. We obey because we're loved. We're not obeying to get loved. We are loved. I already have everything I ever wanted. I want to obey. We obey because we're free to for the first time. You're not obeying to get free. You obey because you are free. In other words, for the first time in your life, you're now alive and you're now a human being, so you're now free to finally be yourself. And what does a human being do? What does the good, beautiful, and true do? Well, they love God and they love people. We obey because we want to, not because we have to, which means you're not obeying because you're trying to get something from a person Helping a lady across the street, wow, well, I'm a good person, or everybody thinks I'm a good person. You obey because you want to, which means helping a lady across the street is good, beautiful, and true for its own sake. Doing art is good, beautiful, and true for its own sake. You don't do it to get popular, you don't do it to be enough. Loving God, you're not doing it so He loves you and so He blesses you. Loving God is because He is enough and because He is all-loving and mostly because He loves you first. We always love people who love us. Have you noticed that? It's strange how that works. I've never seen anyone that doesn't love someone back that loves them. Haven't seen it even when they're hurting that person. We obey because we're loving God back. Here's practical, and then i got to end. Oh, my word, I do have to end. Sorry, Holly. (laughs) The practical is going to be really, really quick. All I want to do is give you three practical things in terms of how do you feed on grace because that's what it is. Remember, we're doing this not to activate grace. We're doing this because grace activates us. So your doing is going where you get activated by God. God activates us. That's why they're called means of grace. That's why they're called sacraments. They're ways in which Jesus actually shows up spiritually with his salvation and feeds you and reaches you and restores you and renews you. Okay, so here we go. Um, And you also need to starve the beast, and we need to do this together, which means the beast is going to be the beast. It doesn't mean you jump in there and try to fix this thing because you can't. It took the cross to kill it, and it still takes Jesus to put it to death in an experiential way until we're in heaven. So the issue in the Christian life is not to go to your sin nature and tackle your idols and sit there and try to do war with them. You will lose every time that decide to change, you'll just get worse. Or you're going to bring some voodoo upon it. You know, you're going to bring uh, some way to activate God to work on it. No, that's not going to work. You'll get spiritually exhausted, which statistics are showing this is what's happening in the church. So what you do is you starve it. It is what it is. 
Do you expect your sinful nature to do anything other than be idolatrous, commit adultery, tell lies? Do you? Jesus died and crushed it, or he didn't need to come, Paul says. So what you do is you starve it. You just let it be, and you feed on grace. That's practical, sort of. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to learn to listen to God in the Bible. In other words, Luther says, when you approach the Bible, shut up and listen. Stop talking, because you really don't have anything to say. And I'm being honest. Shut up and listen. And that means you're not listening to yourself or a still small voice. You're not listening to the absence of sound, which Eastern meditation tries to do, or the sound of the cosmos. You're listening, and you're not listening to God in your heart. You're listening to God with the Bible. Learn to. And what that means is when you listen to God with the Bible, you want to have a slow, gentle read of the Bible. You're, you're forsaking all control of the Bible. You're forsaking all trying to master it. You're, have it. you're luxuriating in the text, as I say over and over again. You're learning to relax and rest and listen. And what that means is you're learning to ask questions of the text. You're learning to think in the presence of God You're learning to enter into the world of the text and let the text's world shape you, not you go into that world and shape the world. Okay? Here's what happens when you do this. This is nothing more than it's called, it's an ancient practice called scripture meditation. What happens is this. When you are reading the text in a listening way and you start thinking in the presence of God, that's called scripture meditation, You now are thinking in the presence of God. You will now start praying in the presence of God. You are now communing with God. You are experiencing God with the Bible. Other quick thing here is in our relationships with each other, if we're going to help each other feed on grace and starve the beast, we need to learn to be friends. That sounds funny, but this is why we do community groups. And learning to be a friend, I want to say this because this needs to be said. We just need to be natural about it. My wife is like, honey, just be natural, please. Stop trying to make something happen. Stop trying to fix the world. If you have that problem, then you need to hear this like me. Just be natural about it. Forsake control. It takes time. It takes trust. Be unshockable at people's sin. Why are you shocked? Seriously. Why are we shocked? Are we not sinners? Be surprised by grace. And then serve each other. And then here's a key. Be a friend instead of needing to have a friend. That's a big difference. Be a friend. Don't go around saying, I need a friend. I need a Be a friend. And when you be a friend, guess what? You're going to have friends. A great way to do this is to do rounds at church, even while you're here. So like when you're at church, I I tell the leaders this all the time. Listen, I'm not asking, when you become a leader at this church, I'm not asking you to schedule out 20 hours a week now to do ministry. 
One of the ways that we do it is actually just do it while we're in the life of the church, while we're here on Sundays, Wednesdays, community groups, special sprint ministries. Be there, engage people, be friendly, be interested in people. Pray with people on the spot. Go out for lunch after church. Also do ministry together. In other words, grab someone and go do ministry together. I mean, contact Colin because he's putting these things together. We've got ministry teams that circle around word-oriented ministries, teaching, communication, relational-oriented ministries, one-on-one in small groups, and mission-oriented ministries. Colin's organizing these. We're, we're developing them. If you see one that we don't have, come. I mean, Kate did this. This is why we're doing CareNet. Go talk to him. And Holly would love to see you at the children's ministry. But do it with somebody. Make a new friend. And here's another, here's one I really want to see happen. What if you grab a friend and you say, we're going to do a community group, but it's just going to be us starting it, and we're going to fill it with new people we reach? Now, I love that. In other words, make friends. What about all your neighbors? You get a friend, and you go, all right, we're going to be a missional group, and we're going to reach people. And we're going to be friends. We're not going to be stupid. We're not going to be hokey. We're going to be natural. We're not going to be Christianese and Christian ghetto. Right? We are not. I better stop. (laughs) All right, third thing we're going to do, feed, grace, starve the beast. Relationships outside the church, make new friends. Start by praying for people. Pray for your people. And you're saying, who are my people, Jeff? Well, that's a great question. You know who your people are, wherever God has placed you? Those are your people. That means people in your home. That means people in your neighborhood. That means people at the gym. That means people in your book club. That means people in your drama group. That means people in your music thing. Uh, that means your kids, parents, friends, school. I mean, you get it. Get in a group with your talents. Get in that group. Don't do what Mark did, though, and take up bike riding and break your... What did you break? Where are you? He went over head first over his bike because he got in a new group. That's a good thing. I'm glad you did that, brother. But ask Landon and Amanda. Will you two wave? Right there. All right. Ask them what happened when they got in a group of their interest. You know what they did? They met in a dance group. They're getting married in August. That's how you do it, people. That's how you do it. That's a mission. Man, you want to find a wife, that's how you do it. And then when you pray, you pray for them, and then after you prayed, initiate something, anything, anything, initiate. I got to end. All right, here's the deal. Uh, this series is done. I'm done. I, I, I'm doing a wedding this week, and then I'm going on vacation. Uh, in the fall, what are we going to do for um, preaching? What are we going to preach on? Here, here's some choices I'm throwing out there. I'm thinking of Song of Solomon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> About marriage and dating and sex, but mostly sex. And if you vote for this one, Dorothy will record your name because I want to know who is voting for that. <laughs> and then Jonah. So Song of Solomon and Jonah. And then maybe something else. There's a third option that usually will happen while I'm on vacation. Something will happen. So those are your choices. Cast your votes. We are democratic to a small extent. And then we become a dictator and I'll decide what we do.